Oh, her belief was that I'm supposed to do everything for her. And why wouldn't she believe that? That's how it had been. Now, two decades later, Kathy's sister doesn't manipulate her or demand excessive support the way she once did. Brian is at a much earlier stage of the process. He started refusing his parents this year. But he's starting to see gradual growth, too. This year, my mom asked me what my and Stephanie's plans were for Christmas, he says, smiling a bit, instead of wanting to know which day we'd be arriving at their house. Which maybe doesn't sound incredible to you, but that's huge. They asked. They didn't assume. This doesn't mean Brian's work is over, of course. His parents still regularly want to have hours-long chats with him on the phone or ask him to share more about his life than he's comfortable with. When those moments come, he falls back on the broken record technique. I just have to keep telling them, sorry, I'm busy, but I love you so much, he says. Lightening the Invisible Load Riley's marriage to Tom was nearly destroyed by a pile of cardboard boxes. He never picks up after himself unless I tell him to, she says about her spouse. And frankly, having to ask him every single time is demoralizing. It's not my job. Riley's been with Tom since college. Over the years, the two had fallen into an uncomfortable, yet all-too-common pattern. They both worked all day. Riley as a public school elementary teacher, and Tom at a science museum. At the end of the day, Riley would make time to tidy up the house, picking up empty food containers, sweeping the dirt by the front door, and throwing socks in the laundry. Tom would just flop onto the couch and play Minecraft. One evening, Riley came home late and found that Tom had left a pile of boxes on the kitchen counter. A bunch of Amazon orders had come in that day, and he'd torn open their packaging and left them in a heap. I decided I was going to test him, Riley says. I wanted to see how long he would just let the boxes sit there if I didn't say anything about them. For weeks, Riley didn't say a thing about the boxes, and Tom didn't touch them. When more mail came in, Tom threw it on top of the pile. Dust accumulated on the boxes, but he didn't seem the least bit bothered by it. A month passed. The counter had gotten so dirty that it was unusable. Tom started prepping his meals on the coffee table in the living room instead. Two and a half months into the experiment, Riley came home and saw Tom chopping vegetables in front of the TV, broccoli florets falling onto the carpet, the boxes still piled up in the kitchen. She snapped. I screamed at him. I said horrible things, she tells me, stuff I'm still having to apologize for. And when I told him that the boxes, the fucking boxes, were the reason I was so upset, all he said was, well, why didn't you tell me? Riley spent years silently suffering through what researchers call the second shift, the hours of cleaning and tidying that women typically perform when they get home from work. Women often suffer from an unspoken yet powerful pressure to look after the house, keep track of their family's to-do list, and run countless household errands, while the men in their lives do comparatively little. Like Riley, many women spend all day keeping a running mental log of household responsibilities that need to get done. 
while the men who live with them seem to be completely unaware that there even is a list that's forever growing and must be dealt with. When women confront male partners about this imbalance, the common reply is the infuriating, well, you should have asked me for help. The second shift isn't exclusive to romantic relationships. Grace did all of the cleaning in her apartment because her roommates, three straight men, couldn't be bothered to chip in. And this phenomenon expands way beyond the home. In professional settings, women take the lion's share of the social and domestic work, cleaning out the office refrigerator, buying the cake when a coworker has a birthday, and making sure meetings are up to date on the company's communal calendar. In academia, women faculty members are nearly always the people who organize and lead committees, schedule events, and mentor struggling students. When men don't perform their fair share of this work, women tend to pick up the slack. It's very difficult for most women who've been indoctrinated by the laziness lie and decades of living under sexism to consider that they deserve to let those responsibilities drop and to be as selfish as the men around them. Mandy is a professor at a university in Indiana. Recently, she told me her dean berated her for spending hours in her office each week speaking with students who weren't high achievers. Many of them were at risk of flunking out, and she was providing them a necessary confidence boost, as well as practical tips for succeeding in college. The dean told me I was wasting time I could have spent doing my job, she says. I had to tell him, this is my job. Though supporting students is, in theory, the role of a professor, helping them was unlikely to earn Mandy any awards or get her any publications. Yet she saw it as a necessary duty, both because she cared about these students and because her male colleagues had failed to provide their fair share of mentoring. As a result, first-generation college students, students with learning disabilities, and anybody else who was having a tough time always knocked on Mandy's door, not anyone else's. This imbalance of power and responsibility gets even worse when you take into account other isms, such as racism and transphobia. Transgender women, for example, often feel an even more intense pressure to perform domestic labor than cisgender women do. Rebecca explains it this way. If a cisgender woman decides to fight the power and say, hey, I'm not doing all the household chores anymore, it's a feminist act. But if I refuse to do those womanly activities as a trans woman, people go, oh, you're so entitled and lazy, you're acting like a man. Race is also interwoven into this issue. Black and brown women tend to take on even more invisible labor at their jobs than white women do. They also expend a great deal more energy monitoring how they speak and act, because even the smallest expression of displeasure can get them labeled angry or rude. In academia, men of color do much more committee work and service than white men do. Their time is seen as less valuable, and people expect them to do the thankless work women are also expected to do. People of color are also expected to head diversity initiatives run inclusion committees, and spend time educating their white co-workers about racial bias, typically with no additional compensation. The laziness lie loves to blame victims for their own oppression. It tells us 
that if a person wants to succeed in the face of bigotry, all they have to do is work harder than everyone else and attend to their own needs even less. It's a toxic mindset that can erode their mental and physical health, as well as their sense of boundaries. There are, however, steps a person can take to slowly reduce the amount of invisible, undervalued work they reflexively take. Track how you spend your time. Kathy Labriola recommends that her clients take stock of how much time they throw away doing work that goes unappreciated. I ask them to keep very careful track of how they spend their time at least for a couple of weeks, she says. Even if it's just 30 seconds here, a minute there, so they can see how it all adds up. Kathy finds that her most exhausted, stressed-out clients spend hours every day doing chores, answering non-urgent messages, updating group calendars, and generally taking care of the needs of other people. They often don't realize how much time gets spent doing these things. All they notice is the nagging sense that they never have enough time to do everything they're supposed to be doing. By keeping track of their daily habits for a few weeks, Kathy's clients can step back and see just where all that time is going. Then they can reflect on whether those small daily choices reflect their real priorities. Clarify your values. Both Kathy Labriola and Sharon Glassburn mentioned asking their overextended clients to sit down and evaluate whether their day-to-day habits actually align with what matters most to them. Make a list of all the things you do on a regular basis and see if some of them can be eliminated, Kathy says. Are they really necessary? Drop activities that aren't nurturing you or bringing something positive into your life. Sharon Glassburn helps her clients work through these decisions using a worksheet on values clarification. Values clarification is a process in which a person examines their choices and actions and asks whether those choices line up with the ideals that matter most to them. Values clarification. Your values are the beliefs that define what is most important to you. They guide each of your choices in life. For example, someone who values family might try to spend extra time at home, while someone who values success in their career may do just the opposite. Understanding your values will help you recognize areas of your life that need more attention and what to prioritize in the future. In the following list, select your 10 most important items. Rank them from 1 to 10, with 1 being the most important item. Love, wealth, family, morals, success, knowledge, power, friends, free time, adventure, variety, calmness, freedom, fun, recognition, nature, popularity, responsibility, honesty, humor, loyalty, reason independence, achievement, beauty, spirituality, respect, peace, stability, wisdom, fairness, creativity, relaxation, and safety. What I really like about this exercise, Sharon says, is that it forces a person to step back and decide, even if they care about all these things, 
which ones they really want to put first. Because you can't actually have everything. You do have to make choices about how you're going to spend your time. Rather than scrambling to do it all, maintaining a clean house, doing countless volunteer duties, working long hours, and supporting our friends, we often need to free up our schedules and our minds by doing much less. When we say no to the things that aren't the most meaningful to us, we have the capacity to deeply invest in the things that are meaningful. That may require offloading some responsibilities onto somebody else. Let other people do the job poorly. After the blow-up about the cardboard boxes, Riley finally sat down with Tom for an honest conversation about how chores got divided in their household. She learned something kind of surprising about his outlook. He told me that every time he does something around the house, I complain about the way he did it, she says. Like, if he doesn't sweep well enough, I'll just go back and do it again. I guess it fed into his sense that, you know, taking care of the house was something I was in charge of, and he was just supposed to follow my lead. Riley had spent years paying attention to household chores and learning how to do them correctly. For her, it was cringe-inducing to watch Tom stumble through these same tasks poorly. So she cut in and did them properly, hoping Tom would notice and adapt. Instead, he got the message that he couldn't be trusted with those tasks. Riley had to learn to resist the urge to save Tom from his own ineptitude. With the help of a couple's counselor, Riley finally started passing household tasks to her partner. Now he's in charge of dishes, laundry, and cleaning the bathroom and living room, she tells me. It's not my job. What I have to work on is not accidentally doing any of it or telling him how to do it. Now, if Tom flounders while cleaning, Riley doesn't step in. She'll sit on the patio and read a magazine while he takes twice as long to scrub the bathroom as it would take her. Her inaction might look downright lazy to a stranger, but she's proud of having finally learned to let go a bit. I had one client who was working a full-time job, raising children, trying to do everything she was supposed to be doing, she told me. I could either have a life or have a clean house, Kathy says, and she decided to have a life. Coping with Parenting Guilt It's no coincidence that the client who gave up on having a clean house was a mother to small kids. Parents face perhaps the greatest social pressure to meet others' needs of anyone. There are so many ways to get parenting wrong in society's eyes, so many choices that can earn a parent judgment and disdain. This makes an already tiring, demanding responsibility even more anxiety-ridden and grueling. And once again, the source of this problem is the laziness lie. Competing yet incompatible perspectives on how to do parenting right become popular every few years. Every generation of parents finds something new to feel bad about. From about 1920 until the middle of the 20th century, psychologists such as John B. Watson warned parents not to cuddle or kiss their children and to limit physical contact to a handshake or a pat on the head. Watson claimed that too much affection could make a child weak-willed and soft. In the latter half of the 20th century, the big parenting fad was attachment parenting, which suggested the exact opposite approach. Suddenly, the fear became that children who weren't held and cuddled enough 
would develop low self-esteem, depression, and tons of other issues. By the 1990s, things flipped again, and fear of helicopter parenting began to build, and parents started worrying that being too attentive could erode a child's sense of self. There is no way to not mess your kids up, says Aiden, a stay-at-home father to three boys. Aiden is a transgender man and says he's worried about how to be the best father to his kids since the day he realized he was pregnant. You can read all these books about what not to do and make yourself sick worrying about it. Even when you're pregnant, you can read all this competing advice. Don't eat this, don't exercise, no, wait, you should exercise, and you never know if any of it actually matters in the end. Today, parents are inundated with conflicting advice. Mommy blogs and parenting-focused social media accounts dispense endless judgment on issues like breastfeeding, co-sleeping, allowances, and daycare. Nearly every choice is highly politicized, from preschool selection to purchasing gender non-conforming clothes and toys. Many parents report feeling guilty and uncertain about their choices, and fear being socially rejected for failing to raise their kids perfectly. These anxious parents worry that they're not doing enough to set their children up for success. In short, they feel lazy. Aiden says he used to take all these competing perspectives to heart, and it drove him absolutely batty with worry and self-doubt. His mother-in-law contributed to his anxiety by critiquing everything Aiden did and said as a parent, too. She meant well, but she had all these ideas that were so out of date, he says. She wanted me to raise my sons in this really stereotypically masculine way, which, as a trans person, I'm just not going to do. But she didn't get it. Facebook and Instagram gave Aiden's mother-in-law a regular window into his family's life, allowing her to judge him from thousands of miles away. When Aiden posted online about his kids, he'd sometimes get critical comments from total strangers as well. I'd share pictures of my kids to private parenting groups, he says, but even there, other people would tell me what I was doing wrong, how I should have nursed my kids longer, how I needed to sign them up for sports, all this stuff I didn't even ask for anybody's opinion on. Parenting is always kind of solitary, but this made it especially isolating. Some studies suggest that parenting anxiety is on the rise, due in part to social media use. Yet again, digital tools have made it easier than ever for the laziness lie to pursue us, constantly reminding us that there's more we could be doing and that we're letting people down in an endless variety of ways. Rather than succumbing to this pressure, Aiden chose to reject it. By the time you have your second kid, you realize you've screwed up a thousand times and you're gonna screw up again, he says. And each time it happens, it terrifies you less. The world doesn't end. Instead of aiming to be a flawless dad, Aiden decided to embrace just being good enough. It turns out that research suggests good enough is a great goal. Be just good enough. In the 1980s, developmental psychologists started embracing the concept of the good enough parent. After generations of passing down rigid rules for how a parent, usually a mother, was supposed to behave, researchers began to realize that parenting perfection 
didn't really exist. Every parent had flaws, and trying to eradicate those flaws didn't work. Instead, parents coped better if they entirely abandoned the hope of being perfect. According to developmental psychology, the good enough parent provides their child with love, shelter, and adequate food. They make mistakes, but nothing that causes their children significant trauma. They didn't obsess over society's ideas of what a parent should be doing. Instead, they find a balance between their own needs and the unique traits and passions of their child. For Aiden, being a good enough dad means cutting some corners. We eat a lot of microwave chicken tenders in this house, and sometimes I'll put the kids to bed early without a bath, he says laughing. My mother-in-law would hate to hear that, but my kids are happy, healthy little goblins, and my husband and I actually have time to have sex once in a while. Embrace Mistakes A key feature of the good enough parent is that they don't beat themselves up when they make a mistake. Instead, they try to make amends for it and learn from the experience. Research suggests that it's the comfortable, self-accepting imperfection of the good enough parent that helps a child learn how to deal with life's inevitable setbacks and disappointments. Another parent I spoke to, Emily, openly discusses her mistakes with her daughter. One of her biggest mistakes was engaging in corporal punishment. I used to think spanking was good discipline, she tells me. That's how I was raised. But then I learned all about the research that it's just bad. It just doesn't work. My daughter's 12 now, and we've talked about it. I told her, here's why I used to think that was okay, and here's why I stopped. When parents discuss mistakes with their children, they create an open line of communication that makes the relationship more resilient and capable of growth. Research also suggests that parents who are comfortable with making mistakes are more accepting of their children's flaws and screw-ups as well. Live your own life. Famed couples counselor Esther Perel has frequently written that in order for a parent to maintain their own mental health and sense of identity, they must make time to pursue hobbies and social activities that have nothing to do with their kids. This can benefit the children in a direct way. When parents choose to detach a bit from their parenting role, they give their children the freedom to entertain themselves and find their own passions. Aiden put this principle into practice a few years ago, shortly after his middle child was born. Though having two children left him busier than ever before, he made a conscious choice to carve out time for one of his favorite activities, rock climbing. I told my husband, look, I'm going to start climbing again. And, like, one weekend a month, I want to go out to the state parks and go up some cliffs, he says. And my husband was like, okay, I'm going to start scheduling Dungeons & Dragons sessions with my friends, too. Years later, both Aiden and his husband still make regular time for their hobbies. When their plans overlap, they hire a babysitter and try not to feel guilty about it. Sometimes one of the boys will be sick and one of us will go... Oh, I should cancel my plans and stay with them, Aiden says. And in those moments, one of us will correct the other and go, Look, it's good for the family to do what's good for ourselves. And usually that helps. Setting limits with exhausting friends. 
Years ago, I had a friend named Ethan. We met online on a forum for fans of the show Mad Men. I loved the dark wit Ethan brought to his weekly reviews of the show's episodes. Our online conversations evolved into a friendship, and a few years later, Ethan moved to Chicago to take a new job. Once he arrived in Chicago, Ethan's behavior changed. He hated his job and quickly became depressed. He had no other friends in town and became reliant on me for social contact and emotional support. He started telling me about abuse he had endured as a child, often going into upsetting detail. He complained about his boss and said his life looked hopeless. Eventually, he started talking about suicide. I didn't want Ethan to hurt himself. I felt responsible for his well-being. After all, he'd moved to Chicago, knowing nobody else but me. If I didn't listen to him pouring his heart out, nobody would. So I did everything I could to help. I'd talk to him late into the night, reassuring him that his life had meaning and that he should keep going. I researched therapists in his area and created a list of providers I thought would be a good fit for him. I searched for jobs he could apply to and sent them his way. I had a social worker friend call him up and work through solutions with him. One night, Ethan was caught in a deep, depressive spiral and kept texting me the same words over and over. I don't have any hope. I don't have any hope. I don't have any hope. Ethan, I'm so sorry, I wrote back. I don't know what to say. Did any of the therapists I recommended look like a good fit? All a therapist would do is tell me to look on the bright side or do yoga or something, he replied grimly. That's not going to help me. I kept encouraging him to get additional help. My support was clearly not enough, I told him. To be honest, Ethan replied, I haven't even opened up the list you sent me. In that moment, I realized I was trying harder to help Ethan than he was trying to help himself. I felt so used and underappreciated that I stopped talking to him right then and there. I was furious at Ethan, but even more disappointed in myself. The laziness lie has fundamentally warped our sense of boundaries, making many of us believe that other people's problems are ours to solve. It tells us that if we care for someone, we have to suffer to help them. Unfortunately, we can't actually fix another person's problems. So we end up frustrated and run down, realizing we've been pouring energy into helping someone who can't or won't meet us halfway. Kathy Labriola works with a lot of clients who struggle with this. It's a wonderful impulse to try to help people, she says, but it can also become a compulsion some people have to always run in and help without even asking if they're the person who should be doing it, or if there's anything they can do to help. The laziness lie guilts us into taking on responsibilities that aren't ours to carry. Before we get wrapped up in yet another dramatic, ill-fated attempt to save someone, we ought to ask ourselves if another person's problems truly warrant our involvement, and if so, which kinds of involvement. From there we can begin breaking out of the insecure, approval-seeking patterns that make us throw away hours of effort trying to help a person who isn't receptive to that help. Determine whether you should help and how much. 
When Kathy has a client who struggles with emotional overcommitment, she presents them with a series of questions that are designed to help them reflect on whether being involved is their responsibility. Here are those questions, followed by some alternative methods of addressing the problem that don't involve trying to fix the situation. Questions to ask before trying to save someone. Can they solve this on their own? Do they want help? Do they want my help? Am I the right person to provide help right now? Can I direct them to seek help from a professional or a close loved one? What are my motives for helping? What will helping cost me? These questions point to how many people reflexively attempt to help others in ways that are excessive, unrealistic, or even downright invasive. I see clients take up all these caregiving responsibilities for someone who's just a casual acquaintance, Kathy says, and suddenly they'll become a major support person in this near stranger's life. And I'm like, you barely even know this person. If I had stopped to ask myself these questions about Ethan, I would have realized that his depression and trauma history weren't issues I could solve, and involving myself so deeply in his life was wildly inappropriate. Ethan needed to seek out therapy himself, when he was ready. I'd wasted hours making a list of therapists for him, when that wasn't what he wanted. What he wanted was for me to be on call to support him 24-7. I could have spared myself and Ethan a lot of frustration if I'd refused to give in to that oversized expectation. It never occurred to me to draw those types of boundaries. At the time, I was too addicted to being useful to other people. Ask yourself why you're trying to help. A few months later, I listened to an episode of the advice podcast, Dear Prudence, and heard something that knocked me right on my ass. One of the advice seekers in the episode was caught up in a very one-sided friendship with their next-door neighbor. This person provided their neighbor with free babysitting, groceries, and tons of emotional support. The neighbor had never so much as thanked them for their generosity. The advice seeker felt resentful, burned out, and taken advantage of. They wanted to know what Prudence, a.k.a. Danny M. Lavery, thought they ought to do. Danny's response began with a few practical tips about how to deflect the needy neighbor's requests. But then he went deeper and challenged the letter writer to ponder why they had felt so compelled to do thankless, unnecessary work for someone who was barely even their friend. Do you believe that if you take care of enough people, Danny mused, eventually someone will notice and finally decide to take care of you? Danny's question might as well have been directed at me. The laziness lie had browbeaten me into hiding every vulnerability and need then left me obsessed with proving my worth to other people. I couldn't imagine asking for emotional support or care. Whenever I felt lonely or sad, I would try to boost my mood by helping somebody else. I had always secretly hoped that somebody would notice how hard I was working and approach me out of the blue saying, Oh, you poor thing, you've already done so much. Let me take care of you. Kathy Labriola recommends that people ask themselves why they want to help people in need and what they expect to get out of helping. 
We all have a mix of healthy and unhealthy motives for doing things, she says, and that's okay. But you do want to get a sense of what the ratio is there. In other words, it's normal to have somewhat selfish motives for helping other people. None of us is perfectly altruistic, but if you find yourself compulsively helping other people in a desperate bid to win their approval, it's time to dial back your commitments. In particular, you should disengage from enmeshed, unfair relationships in which you don't feel appreciated and in which interactions leave you feeling used up or taken advantage of. Stop Rewarding Inappropriate Behavior In his book, How to Deal with Emotionally Explosive People, the psychologist Albert J. Bernstein discusses how providing tons of mental health support to demanding friends can create a self-defeating feedback loop. If you are always there to help your friends feel better when they're down, you may accidentally train them to rely on you in order to feel better. Instead of using their own resources and problem-solving abilities to address their problems, they may begin to feel that they need you to fix things for them. The things that make people feel better the quickest, Bernstein writes, usually make them do worse. This was exactly what happened with Ethan and me. When Ethan was feeling suicidal and hopeless, he should have called a mental health crisis hotline, a therapist, or someone he was genuinely close with. But because I was always there, ready to listen for hours to his every complaint, he learned that I was the place to go with all his concerns. Without meaning to, I had trained him to avoid taking proactive steps to improve his life and instead develop a reliance on me. When faced with a distressed person, many of us feel tempted to do all we can to help. But often, our best attempts at helping can harm everyone involved. There's a huge distinction between providing help and being someone's sole crutch or unofficial therapist. By refusing to take on responsibilities that don't belong to us, we can empower an unhappy person to troubleshoot their own problems. They won't be happy that we've refused to rescue them, but they'll usually be much better off in the long run. In his book, Bernstein describes several reasonable, productive forms of help that compulsive helpers can use to replace the more intense enmeshments they're used to. Instead of offering solutions to a person's problems, try asking them how they will solve it. What do you plan to do? Instead of trying to make a person's bad feelings go away, try letting the person express their feelings without trying to change them. Instead of letting a person vent, cry, or rant for hours without resolution, try listening supportively, but suggesting a distraction or a break when the person gets stuck fixating on the problem. Instead of listening while a person spirals into greater and greater anxiety, sadness, or rage, try interrupting them when they start to repeat themselves or escalate. Let's focus on the present situation right now. Instead of trying to guess what the person wants, try making them clarify expectations. What would you like me to do? Instead of providing more support than you're comfortable with, try identifying other sources of support. Who else can help with this? Instead of taking responsibility for the person's situation, try deflecting responsibility. 
I'm flattered that you care what I think, but you're the expert on what's best for you. If I had responded to Ethan's panic by taking these steps instead of the ones I did, our friendship might not have taken the toxic, parasitic turn it did. I saw Ethan's suicidality as something I had to make go away. Every time I tried to take charge of the problem by telling him to call specific therapists or apply to specific new jobs, I robbed him of even more agency. After I stopped providing Ethan with boundless emotional support, he had no choice but to reflect on how he was going to solve his own problems. Months after we stopped talking, a mutual friend told me that he had a new job he liked and roommates who enjoyed spending time with him. By setting myself free of Ethan's unrealistic demands, I inadvertently liberated us both. It wasn't lazy or uncaring for me to detach from the relationship. We both needed me to. When we stop struggling to meet other people's expectations, we can finally begin to see ourselves and our own values clearly. And when we begin to challenge the demands that individual people place on us, we become better able to cast off the massive, far-reaching ones that society imposes on us as well. Chapter 7. Shrugging Off Society's Shoulds I've already found a few excuses for talking about madmen in this book, but please indulge me one last time. The show does a fantastic job of illustrating the pressure to conform that has always haunted the American workplace. Peggy, the ad agency's first female copywriter, has to learn to overcome her colleagues' sexism by talking, writing, and even dressing more like a man. Rather than fighting sexism head-on, she learns to cope by following its rules by never being too emotional, too feminine, or too sexy. Similarly, the agency's first black employee, Dawn, has to project a persona of unassuming cheeriness so people don't find her angry or threatening. Even the show's white male lead, Don Draper, has to hide every sign of his upbringing as a poor child of hillbillies. His history doesn't line up with the professional image he's cultivated, so it has to be buried under a mask of middle-class, white male conformity. As the descendant of Appalachian hillbillies myself, I find Don's story very relatable. When my relatives left rural Tennessee for suburban Cleveland, they started trying to hide their hillbilly background. Whenever my dad or grandmother accidentally did something that was too hillbilly, someone else in the family would mock it, not so gently correcting them. Often these embarrassingly hillbilly acts were just sensible, thrifty behaviors, like trying to bargain for a cheaper price at a garage sale or taking a piece of decent-looking furniture from someone's garbage. Matthew Weiner, the creator of Mad Men, once said that the show was about becoming white. Don Draper is already white at the beginning of the show, of course. What Weiner meant was that as Don ascends the corporate ladder, he learns to erase more and more of his former self until he fully embodies the wealthy, white, Anglo-Saxon Protestant persona he needs to be in order to get ahead. In my family's case, becoming white was a bit more literal. My family on my dad's side is Melungeon, a mixed-race group of people from the Cumberland Gap region of Tennessee. Many of my hillbilly relatives were white, 
or white passing, but others were dark-skinned and were read as either black or native. When my family moved from Tennessee to Northeast Ohio, it was easy for the light-skinned members to disappear into a privileged, middle-class life. All they had to do was hide their accents and hillbilly traits and never acknowledge their non-white roots. Even as a kid, I learned to rebuff questions about where my family was from and what my ethnicity was, because the complicated truth would bring out people's bigotry. Historical records show that many Melungeon people have followed this exact path, obscuring their non-white ancestry, adopting a white identity, and blending into mainstream society through a blend of conformity and self-erasure. The laziness lie encourages people to conform for the sake of succeeding at work. We're rewarded when we choose to become white in our presentation, professionalism, and work habits. From a young age, we're taught to admire the women writers who had to take male pen names in order to be published, and to celebrate the black inventors and scholars who had to work twice as hard as their white peers for a fraction of the money and acclaim. The people who resist the world's bigotry are branded as lazy complainers who don't have what it takes to succeed. The laziness lie wants us to believe that the solution to every social problem is casting aside your grievances and getting to work. The more a person can buff out all their rough edges, becoming as smooth and featureless and normal-seeming as possible, the more they and everyone around them can ignore systematic problems and focus on being productive. But like every other false promise the laziness lie makes us, it's a self-defeating trap. Before starting Wild Mind Collective, Caitlin worked at a nonprofit that aimed to help low-income black youth find decent-paying jobs. In theory, she appreciated the organization's mission. In practice, their processes disturbed her. The organization focused on finding low-income youth of color who needed jobs, and then kind of transformed them into highly obedient corporate automatons, she says. Caitlin says the nonprofit trained black youth to be endlessly polite and uncomplaining. Staff and volunteers policed the kids' mannerisms and words. Anything that made them seem at all unprofessional was harshly discouraged. The nonprofit also trained the kids to keep their anger and outrage in check, no matter how much unfairness or racism they witnessed. If any of the young people had a problem obeying or had questions about the way things were run, Caitlin says, people at the organization would have these phrases they would parrot constantly, telling them basically to hide their emotions and thoughts and keep on working. I was once a teacher at a charter school that taught its black students similar lessons. Elementary school children were expected to sit at attention with their arms folded and their eyes on the teacher at all times. If a child fidgeted, looked around the room, or expressed their selfhood in any other way, they would be punished. In our deeply victim-blaming, laziness-lie-loving culture, marginalized people are often told that they must solve the problem of their own oppression. Black women are regularly told to straighten their hair because a naturally coiled hair texture is considered distracting and unprofessional by white people. Native Americans are often discouraged from wearing traditional jewelry in the office because it's been deemed too big and flashy. Transgender people, like me, 
are often punished for openly being ourselves in the workplace. Even something as simple as using the correct restroom can result in a reprimand or an attack. We're often told that our very existence is a distraction to other employees. In the mainstream, workaholic workplace, nothing is more threatening than distracting nonconformity. The very concept of what counts as professional behavior is rooted in the desire for social control. The non-binary writer, voice actor, and activist, Jacob Tobaya, writes about this beautifully in their essay titled, Why I'm Genderqueer, Professional and Unafraid. For years, professionalism has been my enemy because it requires that my gender identity is constantly and unrepentantly erased. In the workplace, the gender binary can be absolute, unflattering, and unfallible. If you dare to step out of line, you risk being mistreated by coworkers, losing promotions, or even losing your job. Jacob wears a lot of bright, tailored dresses, chunky jewelry, and smart, work-ready heels. If they were a cisgender woman, no one in any office would have a problem with how they look. But because they're a visibly non-binary person with facial stubble and body hair, their cute, kicky workplace attire is deemed unacceptable. In our culture, lots of people are told that honest expression of their selfhood is distracting or unprofessional. Fat people are expected to contort their bodies or starve themselves in order to fit into a world built for the thin. Disabled people are discouraged from asking for accommodations because it might make them seem weak or lazy. The laziness lie demands perfection, and it defines perfection in very rigid, arbitrary ways. A body that conforms, a tidy, presentable life, a day filled with productive, virtuous activities that benefit society, a life that has no room in it for rebellion or complaint. If we don't check off each of these boxes, we're made to feel as if we've failed. Of course, we were always going to fail. These ideals exist to set our priorities for us and to keep us busy, distracted, and feeling apologetic about our needs. But we don't have to measure ourselves against these unfair yardsticks. If we take a step back and really reflect on all of the things society tells us we should be doing, we may find that many of them don't line up with who we are at all. We shouldn't have to struggle to make ourselves palatable, understandable, and small. Resisting these shoulds makes us strong, not lazy. I could have tried to be a perfectly gender-conforming, polite, pretty young woman. But years ago, I decided I'd rather live as myself. Julie, the former nonprofit director, could have kept trying to work full-time while raising a family, to project the perfect image of the woman who has it all but she chose to prioritize her family's health instead. Caitlin could have stayed at an organization that went against her morals, but instead she chose to create a new path for herself and uplift other wild minds that aren't easily contained and controlled. Each of us has the opportunity to push back against the dictates of the laziness lie and ask ourselves how we truly wish to live. But doing this requires staring down some of society's most pernicious shoulds and rejecting them. Because we've finally recognized that those rules don't serve us. To set ourselves free, 
we have to refuse to meet the expectations that harm us. Deciding not to conform to these unreasonable restrictions may get us branded as lazy, but in truth, it's some of the hardest, most virtuous work around. Your body is already perfect. When you've been taught all your life that your productivity determines your value, it's really easy to become alienated from your body. Instead of seeing your body as a fundamental part of who you are, you come to see it as a means to an end. Our culture views bodies as tools that exist to be used and objects that exist to win the approval of others. This is especially true for fat women, who are constantly told by society that their bodies are failing to perform their job, which is to be as small and conventionally beautiful as possible. It's constantly exhausting to be defined by beauty, says my friend Jesse Oliver. This is something none of us actually really signed up for. Jesse Oliver is a voice coach, an amazing opera singer, and an activist for fat positivity. On her podcast, Fat Outta Hell, she and her co-hosts discuss everything from the joy of finding adorable plus-size bikinis to the difficulty of locating restaurants with chairs that can comfortably hold large bodies. She's been an active voice for fat liberation for many years, pushing back against the judgment and exclusion fat people face at work, in the doctor's office, and in the performing arts. Because she's been on the receiving end of fat phobia for her entire life, she's intimately aware of how society's hatred of fatness is tied to the laziness lie. The diet industry is the only industry I can think of that profits equally whether you succeed or fail, she says. If you don't lose weight, you have to keep trying. If you succeed, they can sell you all these products to help you maintain your weight. Because God forbid you ever become fat again. Hatred of fatness is immensely profitable. In 2019, the weight loss industry was worth over $72 billion in the United States alone. The industry grew 4% from 2018 to 2019, and most analysts predict it will continue to grow for many years to come. The weight loss biz is a massive beast with many far-reaching tendrils, peddling everything from diet pills to fat-blasting workout classes to cosmetic surgeries to weight training belts. If you believe your body needs to change, there are lots of options into which you can pour your money and a lot of businesses that are eager to feed your insecurities to keep that money flowing. Society's hatred of fatness pushes many of us to work incredibly hard in pursuit of an arbitrary standard of perfection. It keeps us overexerting ourselves in gyms and fitness classes, trying desperately to mold our bodies into trim, toned shapes, regardless of whether that's healthy for us. It tells us that all bodies are capable of resembling the bodies of the wealthy, white Europeans on whom the beauty standards were based. It convinces us that our body's natural hunger signals are not to be trusted and ought to be suppressed with pills or meal replacement shakes. It leads us to spend thousands of dollars per year on desperate attempts to improve ourselves, even though, statistically, those methods almost never work. So much of the research and so much of the science that historically has been done about fatness has been funded by the diet industry, Jesse says. So all the results are being presented in a way that allows them to say, 
We have this thing that will fix you. We are constantly being told that we need fixing. Despite this immense pressure on people to fix their bodies through weight loss, nearly all attempts at weight loss fail. This is true no matter the method a person attempts. Dieting, exercise, surgery, and supplements are all ineffective when it comes to changing people's bodies, especially in the long term. Studies show that between 95% and 97% of people who attempt to lose weight end up gaining back all of the weight that they lost within five years. And though we are all taught to see fatness as unhealthy, a great deal of research shows that repeatedly losing and gaining weight is far worse for a person's health than maintaining a consistent high weight. Despite all of this evidence, many of us keep trying to battle fatness because we've been taught to see fat as a sign of inexcusable laziness. Fat and lazy are two terms that often go together. Both are used to pass moral judgment on a person and to express disgust at who they are and how they live. Just as the laziness lie punishes economic victims for their own misfortune, you could succeed if you would just work harder, it also punishes the victims of fat hate and body negativity by saying all they need to do is eat less and exercise more. From my teens until my late 20s, I had a pretty severe eating disorder. I used to deny myself food as much as possible and force myself to exercise for more than an hour every single day. No matter how busy I was or how tired I felt, when I got incredibly sick back in 2014, poor nutrition was definitely a contributing factor, alongside overwork. To me, the two are inextricably linked. Both my compulsive overwork and my eating disorder came from my fear of being lazy and my need to constantly prove that I was doing enough. To get healthy, I had to unlearn my belief that physical suffering was a sign of virtue. I also had to challenge my fear of gaining weight. For my entire life up to that point, I'd been taught that fat people were inexcusably lazy and were themselves to blame for the exclusion and judgment they faced. To escape my eating disorder, I had to challenge my biases against fat people. Embrace Fat Positivity When I was trying to heal from my eating disorder, one thing that helped immensely was exposing myself to beautiful, celebratory images of fat bodies. I started following the blogs and social media accounts of cool, fashionable, badass fat people and began to really listen to and appreciate the fat people in my life. I devoured the comedy videos of Joy Nash, a fat actor who later went on to star in the show Dietland. I pored over the images of fat fashion models like Arcadio Del Valle and Kelly Lynn. I read writing by fat people about their experiences of prejudice and exclusion. I listened to the struggles of my fat friends. Over time, I could feel my fat phobia and my discomfort with my own body beginning to erode. As I began to judge others' bodies less, I became more compassionate toward my own body as well. Studies show that when we expose ourselves to diverse images of fat people, our negative stereotypes of them begin to go away. Research also shows that spending quality time with fat people out in the real world helps to make thin individuals less fatphobic. Exposure to positive images of people of a variety of sizes and shapes 
helps us become compassionate toward our own bodies as well. By coming to recognize the beauty of fat bodies, I stopped being a pawn the diet industry could manipulate and profit from. More important, I became a less cruel, less judgmental person toward the fat individuals in my life. Remember that your body is not an object. It's you. When psychologists study people suffering from negative body image, at the core of the problem is something called self-objectification. When we view our bodies as objects or things that are separate from our minds, we're engaging in self-objectification. In particularly damaging cases, self-objectification can even involve seeing one's body as a collection of separate parts, all of which have their own perceived flaws rather than a worthwhile whole. Research shows that people who routinely think about their bodies as objects report much lower self-esteem than those who don't, and are much more likely to engage in eating-disordered behaviors. One study even showed that women who spend a lot of time thinking about their bodies actually get worse at solving math problems as a result of the distraction and distress that self-objectification causes them. Unfortunately, the more a person is exposed to media images that uphold a thin-body ideal, the more likely they are to think in these damaging, self-objectifying ways. How do you fight the urge to self-objectify once it's already there? Well, you can focus on what your body can do rather than what it looks like. Exercise can become a process of celebrating what your body is capable of or of enjoying the pleasure a good run or a tough weightlifting session can give rather than a form of punishment. Being gentle with your body is also important. Listening to your body for signs of pain, discomfort, and hunger can help you feel more attuned to your needs and less apt to punish yourself with overexertion. Most of all, you have to work to abandon the fear that being idle or gaining weight is a sign that you are lazy. As we talked about back in Chapter 2, great healing can be found in listening to our bodies and honoring our needs for rest and idleness. It's revolutionary and deeply healing to listen to our body's pain or exhaustion and respect it rather than judging it. Unlearning a lifetime of fat hate and body shame is a long, complex process, but you can begin that unlearning as soon as you accept that you don't need to put any effort into changing your shape. It's society's rigid, fat-phobic expectations for people's bodies that need to change, not you. Your life can be messy. Another damaging should the laziness lie promotes is the idea that our lives should look a certain way. The competitive nature of capitalism leaves many of us feeling that we have to attain a certain kind of lifestyle, one that impresses other people and signals our wealth and success. This is yet another trap and another needless source of stress. The phrase, keeping up with the Joneses, comes from the title of a comic strip by Arthur Pop Momand, first published in 1913 in the New York world. The comic follows the McGinnis family as they struggle to keep up with their showier, classier neighbors, the Joneses. The McGinnises are new to the upper middle class and lack their neighbors' manners, tidiness, and sense of style. Ever since the creation of the strip, the phrase, 
keeping up with the Joneses has been used to describe the pressure many people feel to maintain a classy, presentable lifestyle to impress the people around them. Interestingly, the Joneses never actually appeared in the comic, though it ran for more than 25 years. You never get to see the perfect, respectable family the McGuinnesses aspire to be like. To me, this makes perfect sense. If the readers had been able to see the Joneses, they would have found flaws to pick apart. Instead, the family remained mysterious, always superior to the McGuinnesses in countless ways, yet never being critiqued themselves. As odd as it sounds, this same dynamic of anxiety and comparison to a perfect unknowable other is still maintained on social media today. The people we compare ourselves to are hypervisible and permanent fixtures of advertisements, Instagram feeds, and YouTube channels, but we know very little about their actual lives. This allows us to project an image of perfection onto them. Their spotless homes, stylish outfits, and exciting vacations make our lives seem lackluster and leave us feeling as though we're kind of pathetic and sloppy in comparison. In reality, many of the people who appear to be doing better than us on social media are simply curating their lives more. They're amplifying the glamour and downplaying all signs of struggle or pain. Unfortunately, this creates an arms race of flawlessness, with more and more humanity being smoothed away until the only thing deemed acceptable is an unreal level of perfection. Until a few years ago, Asina O'Neill was an Instagram darling. As a teenager, she accumulated over half a million followers by posting glitzy photos of herself on the beach and at various lush vacation spots. She wore beautiful gowns in rich jewel tones. She bared her flat stomach while donning sleek workout gear. She drank weight loss teas while wearing short shorts and tank tops and tussling her artfully messy hair. By the time she turned 18, Asina was completely burned out and disillusioned with the influencer game. She was sick of projecting a false image of herself and exhausted by the work that crafting such an illusion required. So she deleted hundreds of Instagram posts in the span of a day and altered the captions on all the posts that remained. Each new caption laid bare the techniques she'd used to create the impression of easygoing perfection that had defined her brand. On an old photo of herself lounging on the beach in a bright pink bikini, Asina added the new caption, Not real life. Took over 100 photos in similar poses trying to make my stomach look good. Would have yelled at my little sister to keep taking them until I was somewhat proud of this. Yep. So totally hashtag goals. On a photo of herself in a tank top and running shorts, Asina changed the caption to read, A 15-year-old girl that calorie restricts and excessively exercises is not goals. In her other edited captions, Asina revealed that many of her spontaneous-seeming posts were carefully planned sponsorship deals. She laid out the countless photo staging and editing techniques that allowed her to appear as thin and radiant as possible. In the years following Asina's caption-editing frenzy, a handful of other social media darlings have come forward about similar deceptions and apologized for the damage they'd done. 
Psychological research shows that exposure to these posts takes a toll on how people feel about themselves. A study of Facebook users found that encountering glamorous or aspirational images was associated with a drop in users' self-esteem. Another study found that teens who compared themselves to online personalities experienced more depressive symptoms, while a third study found that adult women who edit and filter their selfies have much more negative self-images than those who don't and experience greater self-consciousness. Other studies have observed similar effects in teen girls. Every unrealistic standard that we encounter on social media can breed a new source of anxiety. Whether it's a stunning outfit or a luxuriously decorated living room, every ridiculously perfect image gives us a new thing to feel guilt and lazy about. But we will never catch up to any of those Joneses because they were never real people in the first place. They're just facades designed to keep us busy, distracted, and feeling insecure because those insecurities keep us both productive and profitable. Thankfully, a growing body of research is shedding light on the steps a person can take to fight these pressures. In short, if social media leaves you feeling as if you're not enough, you can counteract it by avoiding comparisons with other people and seeking out the successful people who inspire you rather than make you feel bad. Avoid Upward Comparisons In nearly every psychological study on the damaging effects of social media use, upward social comparison is a key variable. When we look to someone who seems more accomplished or high status than us and use their perfection as a stick to beat ourselves up with, we're engaging in upward social comparison. If you find yourself feeling threatened or judged every time you view a particular celebrity or influencer's posts, odds are you're doing it. Upward comparison is, in essence, a way of using other people's accomplishments to determine what our own goals should be. It kills contentment and self-acceptance. There's always someone doing better than we are in one way or another. If we constantly seek out people to unfavorably compare ourselves to, we'll never feel like we're enough. Research suggests that people who do a lot of upward social comparing tend to work themselves to the point of burnout. In many ways, the urge to look upward and compare ourselves endlessly to those above us is at the heart of the laziness lie. Often, though, that idealized person sitting above us doesn't really exist. It can be helpful to remind ourselves of that fact. Some studies suggest that there's a psychological benefit to being reminded of how doctored and curated most social media images are, for example. But it's even better to avoid exposing ourselves to those shame-inducing images in the first place. You don't need to beat yourself up by comparing yourself to those who seem more productive or glamorous. You won't suddenly become lazy if you get rid of all that guilt. You can trust yourself to determine your own goals and to follow through with them at the pace that's right for you. Seek inspiration, not shame. There are a variety of ways to look upward, and not all of them do damage. There's a great deal of value in having someone to admire as a source of motivation and encouragement. That's not the same thing as using a glamorous celebrity's beauty as a source of shame. 
The psychologist and researcher Peter Nell Dykstra describes it this way. Individuals may contrast themselves with a comparison target, i.e. focus on the differences between themselves and the target, or they may identify with a comparison target, i.e. focus on the similarities between themselves and the comparison target. Dykstra and his colleagues have observed that when we identify with someone we see as being above us, it can give us feelings of hope and admiration. Rather than making us feel inferior, this upward gaze can leave us inspired. I'll return to an example from early in the book. The Instagrammer, comedian, and model, Ricky Thompson. I have very little in common with Ricky. I'm a white academic, not a black social media star. I don't have his good looks, high energy, or sense of comedic timing. Yet when I see Ricky's modeling deals and media appearances, I feel a swell of pride and identification. I identify with Ricky's creative drive and snarky attitude, as well as his queerness and his offbeat personality. When he does well, I feel like there's hope for all the intense weirdos out there, myself included. I'm not holding myself to Ricky's standard of success. Rather, I view him as a guiding light. I'm not in the same line of work as he is, and I don't want to emulate his career path myself. But his victories remind me that I can be my own best weird self and make a place for myself in the world. Fighting the laziness lie, after all, isn't about abandoning all goals. It's about connecting with the goals that truly light a fire inside us and pursuing them in a healthy way. I think that's why I find Ricky so inspiring. He's clearly living his own life on his own terms and flourishing. It's not your job to save the world. Nearly every person I interviewed for this book mentioned feeling deeply anxious about the future of our world. Many said they feel guilty about not doing more to address the world's problems. Even people who've taken concrete steps to embrace rest and do less in their lives, like Julie and Leo, mentioned feeling remorse that they weren't doing enough to fight climate change, racial injustice, the persecution of immigrants, and dozens of other problems. My friend Kim, whose experiences with homelessness I described in Chapter 1, knows this feeling very well. In the years since being homeless, Kim has built a new life for themselves. They've gotten engaged, moved into a house in Wichita with their partner and daughter, and become a prominent activist. On Facebook, they run several online activist groups, with a combined membership of over 150,000 people. The groups inform followers about things like homelessness, economic inequality, climate change, and dozens of other topics close to Kim's heart. They pour hours each week into keeping the groups active. In real life, Kim also does homeless outreach, giving people money and food and directing them to resources. Unfortunately, there has been another development in Kim's life in the past few years, one that threatens their ability to juggle these many responsibilities. After moving to Wichita, Kim developed Charcot-Marie tooth disease, a rare and painful neuromuscular condition. The disease is debilitating, and it saps Kim's energy in massive ways. My husband does the lion's share of housework because I'm fatigued by physical labor so quickly that it would never get done otherwise. Kim says. 
Sometimes I run a load of laundry or wash four dishes, but then I have to lie down to rest. Kim's disability puts major limits on how much work they can get done, both as a parent and an activist. Running errands, going to doctor's appointments, picking their daughter up from school. Each takes a significant physical toll, and sometimes Kim doesn't have the strength to do any of it. Kim and their husband are constantly burned out, and when things get especially busy, activism has to fall by the wayside. Last September, I compiled a list of about two dozen climate-related reports and articles dealing mostly with how climate change disproportionately harms people living in the global South, indigenous people and disabled people, Kim says. I intended to create a big social media post for each of these reports and post them during the climate strike in September. Unfortunately, Kim wasn't able to make these posts in time. Life got in the way. I had to get wedding invitations in the mail, and I felt guilty every minute I wasn't working on that, Kim says. Caleb and I got married over a year ago, and it's taken us this long to even plan an actual wedding. I had to finally get it done, so the climate strike passed by without my ever getting around to those posts. There are optimal times and days to post certain stories if you want to elicit a response, and I feel terrible when I miss those dates. When I asked Kim what steps they take to manage their burnout or reduce their workload, they don't have much to offer. I don't know that I do anything to prevent burnout, they say. It's never not on the horizon. To some extent, having a neuromuscular condition forces me to rest sometimes. Sometimes, instead of feeling guilty about what I'm not getting done, I just sleep all afternoon instead. Even though Kim clearly has tons of valid reasons to need a break from activism, they still feel guilty for not giving more time and energy to it. Climate change is an urgent, pressing issue, a literal fire that needs to be put out. It's hard to set reasonable work-life boundaries when matters seem that dire. If you care deeply about a variety of social issues, it's easy to feel that you must sacrifice your own well-being in order to save the world. When I spoke to Kathy Labriola about this, she noted that this feeling of panicky urgency is nothing new. The thing that seems so striking to me is that at any given moment in the last 50 years, there are lots of people saying, oh my god, this is the most important issue ever in history and we must sacrifice everything for this cause, she says. People said that exact thing 10 years ago. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, about different issues. And then they got so burned out after a relatively short time that they just dropped out totally from doing anything. As much as we might want to devote our lives to solving the political problems that keep us up at night, intense panic-fueled activism is rarely sustainable. No individual has the power to actually save the world through sheer hard work. It's both ridiculous and destructive to set such high expectations for ourselves. Instead, if we want to fight injustice or work to improve the world, we ought to do so in a collaborative way that recognizes our unique strengths and needs. I spoke with several mental health professionals who regularly treat clients for activism fatigue, and their overall advice was this. Prioritize causes that genuinely inspire you.
set realistic goals for your activism, and work to accept that there are certain problems you cannot fix, no matter how hard you try. Set goals based on compassion, not guilt or fear. If you care about fighting a social problem, it's easy to get swept up in feelings of panic or guilt. When you take a break to rest, to care for yourself, or even to enjoy a vacation, the problem remains, unfixed and looming in the back of your mind. And in many activist spaces, both in person and online, there's a great deal of pressure to remain focused on pressing, upsetting issues all the time, often to the detriment of our health. There are a lot of traumatized people in activist spaces, says Sharon Glassburn. They've experienced a lot of injustice and abuse, and they don't have the ability to walk away from it completely. And so they become really emotionally dysregulated. And they can re-traumatize the people around them. I know exactly what Sharon means. I've seen it firsthand in my own activism. A few years ago, I got involved in a campaign to shut down a solitary confinement prison in southern Illinois called TAMS Correctional Center. I joined up with Leslie, an activist and political organizer who had been fighting to get TAMS closed for more than 10 years. Everywhere she went, Leslie carried a massive suitcase filled with letters from men who were in solitary confinement. She worked a full-time job during the day, then spent four to six hours every night answering letters from these men. Every weekend was filled with meetings with politicians and activist groups fighting to close TAMS. I admired her drive, but I could see that it was corrosive to Leslie's health. Eventually, her intensity took a toll on me, too. One chilly Saturday in March, I came down with a cold. I'd made plans to spend that day with Leslie going door-to-door campaigning for a political candidate she believed would help us get Tams closed. It was a bitterly cold day. The sidewalks were encased in snow, and I was running a fever. I should have bailed on my plans with Leslie. But I knew that if I did, she'd think I didn't take the cause seriously. So we worked all day, barely taking time for a single break. By mid-afternoon, my cold had gotten far worse, and I was barely able to walk. Even then, I could tell Leslie expected me to keep working, and was disappointed in me for running out of energy. Leslie's activist group meetings regularly stretched late into the night, and she was constantly creating long to-do lists that overwhelmed me and her other volunteers. I quit the campaign shortly after that bitterly cold day in March because I just couldn't take it anymore. Instead of burning myself out, I wish I'd set reasonable limits on my activism and hadn't let Leslie's expectations manipulate me into overwork. Now when I decide to fight for a cause, I ask myself a few quick gut-check questions about it. 1. When I think about this activism, do I feel excited or do I feel guilty? 2. If I say no to something or miss an event, do I worry that I'll be judged by the activist community? 3. How much time can I safely give to this cause every week, every month? 4. How will I know when I need to reduce my commitments or take a break? 5. What other steps am I taking to make the world a better place? When I reflect on these questions, 
I'm better able to make a reasoned decision about how much work I can afford to put in, instead of seeing every single social issue as a blazing fire that I must personally snuff out. I can view activism as a regular, healthy habit like exercise. I can't do everything, but I can help chip away at big problems by doing my own small part. Grieve the things you cannot change. One of the mental health professionals I interviewed about this was Sochil Sandoval, a counselor who works with the Chicago-based therapy group Practical Audacity. A queer, transgender, indigenous person, Sochil knows very deeply what it's like to be impacted by injustice on a day-to-day basis. One way that Z deals with it is by giving lots of space for mourning and grief. I think we don't know how to grieve as a society, Z says. I think a lot of the conversation about activist burnout is actually about grieving, about. Being really able and willing to just sit in this space of, this is fucking awful, and there might not be anything I can do to solve this. Sochil shares with me that he often mourns the harm that's already been done to the planet due to industrialization and climate change. Though society can take steps to reduce carbon emissions and slow the damage that's occurring, there's some harm that can never be undone. The Amazon is burning. So many animals have gone extinct because of climate change, Z says. And there's always, I think, this natural impulse to make sense of it all. Like, what are the ways in which you can take action? Like, you sign some petitions. Can you commit to not using plastic? And we can talk about those steps. But let's start with the grief. Let's start with the fact that even if I cut out all plastic from my life. That doesn't take away all the plastic in the ocean. The American Psychological Association issued a massive report on climate grief for the first time in 2017, with chapters detailing how fear about the planet's future is linked to depression and anxiety among adults and children alike. A survey from Yale conducted in 2018 found that 62 percent of people say they're worried about climate change. Up from about thirty percent back in 2015, so Sochil and your clients are far from alone in feeling this despair. Instead of trying to ignore these hard feelings or to solve them with activist work, Sochil recommends honoring them. It may sound very demotivating to sit and mourn loss like this, but feelings of grief can't just be brushed away. When we treat social problems as emergencies that we must fix, we delude ourselves into thinking that we can control them if we only work hard enough. Realistically, though, that just isn't the case. I can fight and fight to make the world more just, but if my goal is fixing a decades-old problem or making it go away, I'm destined to fail and burn out. Sometimes the best way to deal with those feelings of panic and guilt. Is to really let them wash over us for a moment, and really accept that we're not fully in control, or fully responsible for it. This can be an immensely sad experience, but it can also be liberating. When we mourn the losses that cannot ever be brought back, we come to accept the reality we're living in. This allows us to address problems realistically and sustainably. Make your activism 
small. Another way to make activism less stressful and all-consuming is to stop thinking of it as a big, abstract obligation and to focus instead on the small, concrete steps you can take each day. Research from the American Psychological Association suggests that when we look at an abstract, scary problem and focus only on how massive and complex it is, we tend to feel a lot of powerlessness and grief. Conversely, when we turn our attention toward the small, local steps we can take to address the problem, we feel more in control of the situation, less anxious, and more motivated to keep up the fight. For example, I can spend my free time researching how the changing ecosystem will impact Chicago's local and indigenous plants, or attend a talk at the Botanical Garden on how to help plant and protect more native species. I can fight back against local industrial development that would make climate change worse. I can vote for politicians who take the issue seriously and donate to local indigenous-led organizations that are growing native plants and looking after the land in traditional ways. I can't stop climate change. But that doesn't mean I have to give up. I can take solace in the fact that I've helped bring life into the world. It took years for Kim and their partner Caleb to plan their wedding. Kim was always too busy with things like managing their illness, raising their daughter, and engaging in their daily activism. Caleb was always too busy with his full-time job and keeping the house relatively clean and organized. It's been really hard for them to find the time and energy to move to the next stage of their lives. Recently, though, I opened up Instagram and was greeted with a photo of Kim in their wedding dress, smiling and sitting on a hotel bed with their daughter Sophie at their side. Normally, when I hear from Kim, I hear all about how exhausted they are and how difficult everything in their life has been. So seeing them looking happy and relaxed was a really welcome sight. I teared up, and then eagerly hopped over to Kim's profile so I could look at all of the other beautiful, joyful wedding photos that had been uploaded. I know Kim probably still feels bad about having taken time away from their activism in order to plan this wedding. But as their friend, I'm so happy they did. Conclusion Compassion Kills the Laziness Lie I started this book with the example of a parent telling their child that homeless people are lazy and don't deserve generosity. Beginning there was a deliberate choice. Lots of people have been taught to see homeless folks as the epitome of laziness and to believe that laziness is the root cause of homeless people's suffering. This tendency to blame people for their own pain is comforting in a twisted way. It allows us to close up our hearts and ignore the suffering of others. This same tendency also keeps us running endlessly on the hamster wheel of hyperproductivity. When we view homeless, unemployed, or impoverished people as victims of their own laziness, our motivation to work backbreakingly hard gets stronger than ever. The fear of ending up homeless morphs into the fear of not working hard enough, which in turn makes life an endless slog of pushing ourselves past the brink and judging anyone who doesn't do the same. Lacking compassion for a struggling group of people actually makes it harder for us to be gentle with ourselves. 
Fighting the laziness lie can't stop at just encouraging people with full-time jobs to relax a bit and take more breaks. The compulsion toward overwork is a key component of the laziness lie, and resisting it is important. But we have to go so much further than that. Our culture's hatred of the lazy is all-encompassing. It bleeds into how we view relationships, child-rearing, body size, barriers to voting, and so much more. The laziness lie teaches us that people who do more are worth more. When we buy into that method of assigning value to people, we doom ourselves to a life of insecurity and judgment. The remedy for all of this is boundless compassion. If we really want to dismantle the laziness lie and set ourselves free, we have to question every judgment of laziness society has taught us to make, including those that are very challenging for us to unlearn. If you're entitled to moments of rest, of imperfection, of laziness and sloth, then so are homeless people, and the people with depression, and the people who are addicted to drugs. If your life has value no matter how productive you are, so does every other human life. It's hard to unlearn this stuff. For me, I think it will be a lifelong project. As much as I encourage my friends, peers, and students to exercise empathy and tolerance, I often struggle with it myself. I'm prone to getting infuriated and judgy the second a slow-walking person blocks my path on the sidewalk. I get impatient when a coworker is late in responding to an email or a calendar invite. When a friend of mine complains about needing to make a change in their life and then doesn't actually go ahead and do it, I'm baffled by their inertia. I ought to know better than to have these reactions, yet I still do. I really hate this side of myself. It's normal to have these disapproving thoughts. The laziness lie has indoctrinated us into having them. These knee-jerk reactions are reflections of the society that we were raised in and the biases that were ingrained in us. Thinking this way doesn't make me a bad person. If you're similarly short-fused, you're not a bad person either. What matters most is how we deal with these feelings. We always have the option of reflecting on where our negative thoughts came from, challenging them, and releasing them when they're no longer doing us any good. There are a lot of things I do to keep the laziness lie at bay and to quiet my mind's constant stream of shame and criticism. These steps are rooted in research from social psychology, the field that has shaped me as a thinker and a writer. If you are still struggling to unpack the laziness lie and the influence it's had on your life, and I think most of us are, these steps are a great place to start. I find that they really help me to be more gentle with other people and to have more compassion for myself. Practice Compassionate Curiosity We often dismiss people as lazy when we can't understand the reasons for their inertia or inaction. If someone's behavior makes no sense to us, passing judgment on it feels very natural. He won't apply to jobs, he sits on the couch all day, and he hasn't washed a dish in weeks. He must be lazy. Labeling someone as lazy can turn a complex, challenging situation into an open and shut case. 
instead of dismissing a person so quickly, it's much more effective to get curious. Every person has reasons for why they act the way they do. Even if someone's inaction strikes us as totally self-defeating or pointless, within the context of that person's life, it makes sense. So when you find yourself inclined toward judgment, try reflecting on why a person might do the things they do. Here are some questions to ask yourself. What need are they trying to meet by acting this way? What challenges or barriers are getting in the way of their making a change? What hidden struggles, such as physical disability, mental illness, trauma, or oppression, might explain the difficulties they're facing? Who might have taught them to act this way? Do they have other options? Are those options really attainable for them? What kind of help might they need? Research shows that exercising curiosity is a fantastic way to unlearn our prejudices and biases. And the more we learn about someone's circumstances, the more compassion we have for them and their apparent shortcomings. I've put this principle into practice with my students more times than I can count. If a student is missing assignments, showing up late, and failing to respond to my emails, my initial reaction might be to write them off as lazy or unmotivated. I could give up on them right then and there. But it always works out better if I get curious instead. When I check in with a student to see if they're doing okay, I often find that their apparent laziness is actually caused by a ton of turmoil and difficulty in their life. When a student trusts me enough to share this information, it gives me an opportunity to offer them help. These moments of connection and collaborative problem-solving are some of the most meaningful experiences I get to have as an educator. And if I'd remained judgmental and committed to the laziness lie, they never would have happened. I have a close friend who struggles with addiction, and I find myself applying the same thinking to his situation. He has a really hard time falling asleep at night and has experienced suicidal thoughts and urges his whole adult life. Sometimes his best option is to get so drunk that he falls asleep and can't harm himself. It's not a pretty solution, but it makes complete sense to me. I've encouraged him to reduce his drinking, and I cheered him on when he started seeing an addiction counselor. But I don't blame him for choosing to drink instead of ending his life. I'm glad he's alive to fight another day, and I respect his decision-making process. I also find these questions useful for understanding my own behavior. I used to vape nicotine, and for years I felt embarrassed by how wasteful and stupid the habit was. Then I asked myself, what situations make me vape more? What do I enjoy about doing it? I realized pretty quickly that I was using vaping as an appetite suppressant and to give myself a little jolt of extra energy, the same way I might use caffeine. Once I realized this, it was pretty easy to replace vaping with eating snacks and drinking more coffee. Shame would never have gotten my behavior to change. Compassion and curiosity were what I needed. Look to the broader context. Sometimes we don't have the chance to ask a person about their situation and why they behave the way they do. Even in the absence of that information, we can practice compassion by looking at the big-picture factors that limit them or make their life hard. It's much easier to accept a person's actions, or inaction, 
when we recognize that there are outside factors that influence how they behave. Sometimes, the outside factor is something as simple as having a bad day. Other times, the external factor is something massive and systemic, like classism or racism. As I have already outlined in this book, fighting against the laziness lie is particularly difficult when a person has been pushed to society's margins. People of color and women are often expected to be unfailingly productive and uncomplaining, above and beyond the level white men are. People with mental illnesses and physical disabilities are shamed for having needs and limitations. Looking after their health can be viewed by other people as an indulgence. Even people like my Appalachian relatives had to struggle against this. Just think of how often movies and TV shows play with the stereotype of the lazy, ignorant hillbilly. The laziness lie encourages us to label people and to pass judgment on them, rather than looking at the broader context they've been placed in. By zooming out and examining their social context, we can get better at seeing them as complex, dynamic people instead of hollow stereotypes. This helps us to stop expecting flawless behavior and productivity from them and to start seeing them as people who are worthwhile no matter how much they do or don't produce. It's also useful to apply big-picture thinking to our own struggles. If I fail to meet my goals for the day, I could beat myself up for being a lazy failure, or I could ponder what else is happening in my life that might be slowing me down. Maybe I had trouble sleeping the night before, or I'm about to come down with a cold and I just don't realize it yet. Maybe I just learned that my employer-provided health insurance won't cover any gender transition-related expenses, and so I'm feeling really excluded and undervalued. These things affect me. They'd probably affect you, too. I'm not a flawlessly productive robot, nor is anybody else. In fact, it's a good thing to be sensitive to the situation I'm in and to react to setbacks and disappointments. Remember Sochio Sandoval's observation that we all need time to mourn. Having emotional reactions to one's circumstances is a sign that you are adaptable and alive. It's only because of the pervasiveness of the laziness lie that we see natural reactions as weaknesses. Stop associating productivity with goodness. After you've gotten into the habit of reflecting on why people act the way they act, you can take it even further. Question your root assumptions about which actions are better than others and why. Curiosity about a person's context helps us to be understanding when their actions strike us as ineffective or bad. And that's a great place to start. But it's even more radically compassionate to stop labeling behaviors as bad at all. The laziness lie is rooted in capitalism and a particularly harsh breed of Christianity, and it preaches that salvation comes from hard work. That belief system carries over into how we talk about productivity, effort, and achievement. It teaches us to view idle time as a waste and to try to constantly keep ourselves occupied. It leads us to assume that there is more virtue in doing something than there is in doing nothing, no matter what that something is. This mindset can lead down many dangerous paths. If work is always better than unemployment, then it's better to serve an abusive boss in a corrupt, environmentally damaging industry than it is to quit.
If keeping busy is a sign of virtue, then it's okay to burn through tons of resources traveling the world and having big, expensive, Instagrammable experiences rather than having time alone at home. If being active is always superior to being passive, then it's more important that we talk and express our opinions to the world than that we listen to the experts who might have something to teach us. The laziness lie pushes us into unfettered, frantic individualism, leaving no room for reflection, listening, or quiet, inward growth. I'm reminded of a quote often attributed to Irish statesman Edmund Burke that's often shared with children when they first learn about the Holocaust. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. It's a powerful statement about the necessity of standing up against evil, and I think a lot of kids connect with the words when they first hear them. Leaders of all stripes call on this quote to justify some of their boldest actions. Doing something is better than doing nothing, after all. At the very heart of the quote and its popularity is the laziness lie lurking within it. It says doing nothing is akin to condoning evil. There's a problem with this quote, though. Edmund Burke never appears to have said it. In fact, no one knows where the quote came from. It seems to have been made up, then widely adopted by a variety of political leaders, activists, and nonprofit directors throughout the world. Burke's actual words are far less individualistic. When bad men combine, the good must associate, else they will fall one by one, an unpitied sacrifice in a contemptible struggle. This is not a statement about how good men must be active and engaged in order to fight evil head-on. Rather, it's a call for good people to band together and stand firm against the evil forces attacking them. This quote doesn't praise activity for the sake of activity. It praises community. It suggests that not all battles for good are direct clashes of power and that violent, contemptible struggles often will fail. Sometimes the best thing good people can do is hunker down, care for one another, and survive. I wonder how many times the fake Burke quote has been used to justify bombing an impoverished country, invading an independent state, or even forcing marginalized people into prisons or corrective camps. If standing by and doing nothing is the same as permitting evil, then almost any action you take in an attempt to fight evil can be seen as justified. If doing nothing is evil, then doing something is good, even if that something is foolhardy and destructive. I've sometimes counteracted the fake Burke quote by telling people that all that's needed for harm to persist in the world is for evil people to think they're doing good. When productivity is equated with goodness, it becomes hard to tell the difference. The indoctrination of the laziness lie runs deep. Even once we come to realize how unreasonable and dangerous it is, we may find that it still has a hold on us. In order to combat the laziness lie fully, we have to identify the signs of it that linger in our minds and work to slowly uproot them. Here are some good indications that you may still be associating productivity with goodness. When you get less done during the day than you anticipated, you feel guilty. 
you have trouble enjoying your free time. You believe you have to earn the right to a vacation or a break. You take care of your health only in order to remain productive. Having nothing to do makes you feel useless. You find the idea of growing old or becoming disabled to be incredibly depressing. When you say no to someone, you feel compelled to say yes to something else to make up for it. Throughout this book, I've outlined the various ways in which overexertion is damaging to a person's health, their well-being, and even the quality of their work. While all of this is true, saying it over and over again can have an unfortunate implication. It might seem like the purpose of taking care of yourself is just so you can do better work for longer. If you are still thinking about breaks and rest as a means to an end in this way, then you're still letting your productivity define your worth. When I first wrote the essay that became this book, I got a lot of emails from people who wanted advice on how to boost their productivity. The whole point of the essay was that when people seem lazy, it's usually because they're facing unseen barriers and challenges. Many readers wanted to know how they could go about finding those barriers and challenges in their own lives and excising them. Time after time, I had to tell those readers that I didn't have advice for how they could overcome their every limit and get more done. I didn't even think they should aspire to be more productive. If they wanted to get more done in one area of their life, they'd probably have to cut a few other things out. More important, I wanted them to get comfortable with being less productive than society tells them they ought to be. Taking breaks, drawing boundaries, and learning to listen to our internal feelings of laziness are each worthwhile for their own sake, not because they make us better workers. If you really learn to prioritize your health, it's likely that you'll become less productive overall. That's because you were always doing too much from the outset. Learning to take care of yourself in a holistic way means accepting that you might never be as prolific as you once were, and coming to see that as a good thing. As a result of following the advice in this book, your bedroom might get messier, your inbox might start to develop a backlog, and people might stop praising you so much for your work ethic. You'll know that you've really made progress in unlearning the laziness lie when each of these changes feels comfortable and natural rather than threatening. Of course, no one arrives there in a day. I'm still constantly tempted to evaluate my life in terms of how much I've gotten done. I still find myself judging people who aren't workaholic achievement hunters. One kind of offbeat thing that helps me detach from this line of thinking is taking time to consider my pet chinchilla. Dump truck. Like most pets, dump truck has never done a productive thing in his entire life. All he does is eat, sleep, and destroy the various wooden toys I put in his cage. When I see Dump Truck slumped over asleep in the middle of the day, I don't feel any disdain over how lazy he's being. I don't think he needs to earn the right to food, rest, or playtime. I just love him and find him adorable. His worth to me has absolutely nothing to do with his activity level 
or anything he contributes to my household or my life. His worth comes from his being beautifully, imperfectly alive. If this little animal's life is innately valuable and beautiful no matter what he does or doesn't do, maybe that means my life is innately valuable too. In fact, if I can love Dump Truck just as much when he's doing nothing as when he's doing a lot, then maybe I can care for and appreciate every human regardless of how they spend their time. It's wonderful to realize that all people are deserving of love and comfort and that this worthiness has nothing to do with productivity. I don't always remember this, but when I do consciously take the time to focus on it, it fills me with a feeling of peace. It helps me realize that I don't need to struggle or to punish myself with overcommitments and hard work either. I'm okay just as I am. Be gentle with yourself. The laziness lie has a far-reaching history one that's deeply embedded in the legacies of industrialization, imperialism, and slavery. It has permeated almost every piece of media we consume, from the largest blockbuster films to the most intimate-seeming YouTube channels. Since we were children, most of us have been told constantly about the value of hard work and the dangers of not being ambitious and driven. This kind of intense cultural programming cannot easily be undone. Unlearning the laziness lie isn't really about trying to scrub every sign of its influence from our minds. No matter how carefully we re-examine our thought patterns and question our old assumptions, its influence will always be there. Over time, though, we can get better at dismissing the parts of ourselves that have been conditioned to letting go of and judging and start observing with compassion instead. It's ironic but learning to resist the laziness lie takes a lot of ongoing internal work. Continue to practice self-compassion and gentleness and know that change doesn't come instantly. The path forward is not linear, and there's no trophy to be won by being the best at fighting it. You're still learning. You'll never be perfect, and that's okay. You are fine exactly the way you are. So is everyone else. Laziness does not exist. A defense of the exhausted, exploited, and overworked. Was written by Dr. Devin Price and read by M. Grossland. Editing and post-production by Common Mode. Paul Fowley, Technical Director. This has been a presentation of Simon & Schuster Audio. Laziness does not exist. A defense of the exhausted, exploited, and overworked is available in print from Atria Books.